0: wanted to start this morning by uh, referring to something that, that most men will immediately uh, acknowledge and be like, yes, he's talking football, uh, is uh, the Hail Mary Pass. Uh, having grown up uh, uh, not being too familiar with uh, Roman Catholicism, but being very familiar with football, uh, I knew what a Hail Mary Pass was before I knew what a Hail Mary uh, prayer was. Uh, and uh, originally, uh, the, the Hail Mary Pass is a, is a last-second kind of desperation play uh, by a, a football team that needs to score and doesn't have a whole lot of time to do it. They just have seconds, so they just kind of uh, throw a deep pass uh, and hope that it's caught. Uh, and uh, the term the Hail Mary uh, play uh, started off uh, at Notre Dame and other Catholic universities, uh, but it became famous in a widespread term uh, in 1975 after a playoff game. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys were playing Uh, the Minnesota Vikings, uh, and the Dallas Cowboy quarterback was a guy named Roger Staubach, who who was a Catholic, uh, and he threw a deep pass to wide receiver Drew Pearson uh, at the end of the game to win the game. Uh, And when asked about it later, he said, "Uh, I closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. Uh, And so that was just his last-second desperation hope. Uh, And previous to to that play, uh, the last-second desperation pass had been called uh, several other names, most notably uh, the alley-oop. Uh and so. Uh, but after uh, Roger Staubach said, uh, you know, threw up a, a pass and instead a quick Hail Mary, uh, that play became known as uh, the Hail Mary play. Uh, but uh, what, what is, in essence, the the Hail Mary? Some of us may be uh, more familiar with the pass than the the prayer. Well. Uh, the Hail Mary prayer first appeared uh, in uh, the 12th century, and it was paired with uh, with the rosary bead so that people could could pray it multiple times. And uh, the prayer is is pretty pretty simple. It says, "Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen." Uh, and so like I said that that prayer arose in, in the 12th century but but how is it that uh, that over 12 centuries the church transitioned from praying to to God the Father in the name of Jesus uh, to praying to Mary somebody other than than God well uh, throughout the the first several uh, centuries and ultimately the, the first millennia of the church, uh, the, the Church gradually uh, increased its uh, its I guess worship or veneration uh, of of Mary uh, little by little, and they they adopted something that was called the the Immaculate uh, Conception, uh, again, not for those of you football fans, not the Immaculate Reception, uh, but the Immaculate Conception, uh, which uh, see, quoting from the uh, the official Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the Immaculate Conception uh, says this of of Mary. It says, to become the, the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. In fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses. Uh, As Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854, the most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain, of original sin. So the, the doctrine of the immaculate conception uh, states that Mary w- was born into this world without uh, a sin nature, uh, that she herself never sinned. Uh, and that doctrine was something that developed uh, over that first thousand years of the church to the point where they began to pray to her, hey, if she is without sin, then she has to, at some point or in some way, be, be closer to God than, than we are. So that they began to, uh, to pray uh, to her. Uh, another quote from the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things, so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords and conqueror of sin and death. Uh, another quote from the Catechism. In giving birth... Uh, you, speaking of the uh, Mary, you kept your virginity in your dormition, uh, which is a fancy term for, at uh, the Roman Catholic Church uses for the death, uh, the bodily resurrection, and the ascension of Mary. So, in your dormition, uh, you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God, and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. So, uh, over over the course of the first uh, millennia of the church, Mary continues to be exalted higher and higher uh, in the teaching of the church. Uh, so she's, she's believed to be completely without sin and a perpetual virgin. They don't believe that she married uh, Joseph after Jesus was born, but that she remained a virgin all of her days. Uh, uh, the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, uh, so it would kind of there'd be a discrepancy there but uh so the the, the Roman Catholic Church proclaims Mary as uh having a, an immaculate conception she was without sin but then they also elevate her to a place of uh being a co-redeemer with Christ uh the Bible teaches that that Jesus is the second Adam there's a there's a connection between the first Adam who brought humanity into sin and a connection between Christ the second Adam uh who redeems humanity through his sacrifice Uh, And so it can be said that that the first Adam is a picture of the second Adam. Well, the Catholic Church kind of goes beyond what the Scriptures say, and they try and make that same connection with Eve and uh, Mary. And they say that that Mary is a type or similar to Eve, and that that she ends up uh, reversing what Eve has done, much as Christ reversed what Adam had done. Uh, the, The Catechism of the Catholic Church says her role in relation to the Church and to all humanity goes still further. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity, which is another word for love. Uh, it, she cooperated in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. Uh, another Another quote. This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the annunciation, the annunciation of Christ's birth. So it it continues from that point, and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross uh, until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin, is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. Okay? Uh, so you begin to see that they continue to, to elevate her and elevate her higher and higher. Another uh, quote from the, the catechism, all generations will call me blessed, uh, quoting Mary in Luke 1. Uh, The Church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. That's what the Catechism says. Uh, The Church rightly honors the Blessed Virgin with special devotion. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title of Mother of God, to whose protection the faithful fly in all their dangers and needs. So they're saying that they should run to Mary for protection uh, from danger and to fulfill all of their needs. This very special devotion... Uh, differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the Incarnate Word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit and greatly fosters this adoration. So they, they make a distinction between the adoration that should be shown to Mary which should be shown to the, the Triune God. So say, hey, that, that's that's good, but uh, still it says, the liturgical feasts dedicated to the Mother of God and Mary in prayer, such as the Rosary, which they call, uh, so they call the, the Hail Mary prayer, the epitome of the whole gospel. Uh, and the, the, this uh, dedication, this, these feasts and the prayer express this devotion that should be shown to the Virgin Mary. So this is what was taught uh, in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. Uh, and, uh, and when the Reformers g- finally got a hold of th- the Bible in the, the original Greek and Hebrew, uh, and they, they looked at it and studied it for themselves, they, they came to a shocking conclusion that none of this is present in scripture that none of this is is stated or taught in the bible but it is something that the catholic church in their in their bringing tradition alongside of scripture had uh, had began just to teach out of their own ideas uh, and in addition to elevating mary to a level of co-redeemer uh, the roman catholic church also encouraged saint or uh its uh, adherents to look to the saints, to the pope, uh, and to uh, the priests in the Roman Catholic Church as mediators between the common people and God, uh, and and it was this this teaching that led Martin Luther, that led the other reformers to. To come to the conclusion that the Bible teaches that Christ alone is our Savior and is our mediator, uh, we don't need another mediator, and there is no other Savior. And so, uh, as we've been marching along uh, here in, in October, we come to this this fourth statement of the of the solas, uh, and they they are all intertwined and they build upon one another. The first one that we looked at was, was Scripture alone, meaning that Scripture is our sole authority. Uh, in life. And, uh, and if scripture is the sole authority, then, then we need to know what it says. And as, as the reformers first came to that conclusion that, hey, the Bible is my final authority, uh, then uh, as they studied the Bible, they came to other conclusions. And what those conclusions would be, uh, or let, let's talk through our chart here. So uh, scripture alone answers the question, who has, who has final authority? And the Roman Catholic Church was saying that it, would, it was scripture plus uh, the, the tradition of the church plus the magisterium, which we're going to talk about, which is uh, the magisterium would be the official teaching office of the church composed of uh, the pope and the college of bishops. So uh, that was where the authority lie in the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, the, the Protestant reformers said, no, it's, it's scripture alone. Uh, and uh, so once you, once you establish that as the authority, then you're going to deal with life's most important question. Uh, of who is who is responsible for salvation. And, and the Roman Catholic Church taught that it was uh, it was an act of God and based upon the efforts of man. So it was God's grace plus man's works. Uh, but again, as the Reformers looked at Scripture, they came to the conclusion it's, it's, it's not based upon anything that, that we do. It's not based upon our works, but it's based completely on the grace of God. Uh, and then if if it's based upon the grace of God, if God is the one who saves, how does how does salvation come to man? How does, it, how does it get to us if it's from God? What does he use to, to bring it down to us? Uh, and or you can say, uh, what is the instrument of salvation, or how is salvation received? Uh, and, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, it would be faith plus works. Again, you, you believe uh, the truth of the church, and then you do certain things in order to, uh, to obtain uh, the grace and the salvation of God. But in Scripture, and what the Reformers realized, that it was faith alone, not not in any way uh, involved with works, uh, that we are saved. But then, uh, what we're going to be talking about today is, if we are to believe, and if we are saved by grace through faith, what are we to believe in? Right? Uh, that, that's an important question, because the, the object of your faith uh, is of the utmost importance importance, uh, and so you, you can say, uh, who is the object of our faith? Who are we to believe in for salvation and mediation with God? Who are we supposed to turn to for comfort? Uh, who do we supposed to turn to to, to meet our needs? Who, who do we, we run to? Who do we pray to? And that is an important question, and that's one that we will try and, and answer today as we look at Christ alone, uh, the doctrine of solus Christus. So, uh, First, I want to want to look or explain a little bit more. We've talked about Mary, but I want to look a little bit more about what the Roman Catholic was, uh, Church was teaching uh, during uh, the, the centuries leading up to and following uh, the the Reformation, and, and actually all the way up to, to 1960. 1960 is going to be an important date because the, the Roman Catholic Church actually changed their teaching on salvation at that time in uh, We'll see if I have time to to get into that. But uh, during the time of the Reformation, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would would agree with with us on one part of, hey, look to Jesus, look to him. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior, uh, and we must believe in him if we are to be saved. Uh, They would say that we need to to pray to him, that we need to believe in him. Uh, But they would also say that we need to believe in and pray to others. Uh, I mentioned Mary, she's elevated to a status of of co-redeemer and being without sin, but also the the Catholic Church would encourage people to pray to the saints, to pray to people who had already died and gone to heaven, uh, and that those saints would be able to help them. This is, uh, again, from the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, The intercession of the saints, being more closely united to Christ... Those who dwell in heaven fix the whole church more firmly in holiness. They do not cease to intercede with the Father for us as they proffer. Uh, proffer is a, is a fancy word to say that they they present something to be accepted or rejected. So that they proffer uh, the, the merits which they acquired on earth through the one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. So by their fraternal concern is our weakness greatly helped. So what they're saying is... Uh, that uh, for Roman Catholics, if they pray to the saints, what the the saints who are who are dead and in heaven, uh, they I guess they worked their way through through purgatory and now they're they're up in heaven and they can I guess pass on what they had accomplished on earth to those who are still alive, and that the encouragement was for Roman Catholics to pray to the saints for help and for aid. Uh, so the saints were viewed as as mediators or those who could also help, and then. Uh, the, the Pope and the College of Bishops, as I, as I mentioned, that this is the, the magisterium of the church. Uh, and the Roman Catholics were encouraged and, and taught to, to view them as uh, mediators as well. And, and these were the men that would, in essence, bring uh, revelation or teaching from God to Roman Catholics. Uh, the Catechism says, to fulfill this, or I'm sorry, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, uh, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, another name for the Pope, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ. Uh, Vicar of Christ means that they believe that the the Pope is the earthly representative of Jesus. So as his office of uh, vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church has full Supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. So, according to uh, Roman Catholicism, the head of the church uh, and the, the one who has power uh, to uh, listen to that, if he has full supreme and universal power over the whole church is the Pope. That he's the leader of the, the college of bishops and he is the uh, unquestioned authority within the church the catechism goes on. To fulfill this service, uh, Christ endowed the church's shepherds uh, with the, the char- charism, which is a, a miraculously given power. I had to look up so many words just in reading uh, this. Uh, uh, so that he endowed the, the shepherds, speaking of this college of bishops, with the charism uh, of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. The exercise of this charism takes several forms. The Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office when as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. The infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of bishops when together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium. Above all, in an ecumenical council, which is a council when they would bring the entire church together, uh, when the church, through its supreme magisterium, proposed a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed uh, and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of the faith. This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. So what that is saying is that, in essence, when, when these men gather together, the College of Bishops and the Pope, uh, in essence, whatever they decide and say, hey, this is what God says and there's a new teaching, uh, it's, it's elevated to the same level as what's written down in Scripture. It's elevated to the same, uh, same level of authority, which is, and the reality, if you can't question it, it's, it's infallible. They, they, these men can't be uh, with having any error because of, of their office, so all of this is is bound together, uh, and it goes right along with with its link to sola scriptura in terms of the the implications here. But uh, this in this way, the, the Pope and the College of Bishops are kind of the, I guess the the continual prophets of the Church, bringing new revelation to Roman Catholics. Uh, additional mediators in the Roman Catholic Church would be the priests, uh, right? Uh, they have the, the backwards collars, uh, and the, and you go to them and, and confess sins. The, the The catechism of the church uh, says this about the role of priests in connection with the, the lay people within the Catholic church, that uh, that they are to come and confess. So here's the, where the quote begins. Confession to a priest is an essential part of the sacrament of penance. All mortal sins, of which penitents after a diligent self-examination are conscience, must be recounted by them in confession. When Christ's faithful strive to confess all the sins that they can remember, they undoubtedly place all of them before the divine mercy for pardon. But those who fail to do so and knowingly withhold some place nothing before the divine goodness for remission through the, through the mediation of the priest. For if the sick person is too ashamed to show his wound to the doctor, the medicine cannot heal what it does not know. So in essence, what what that long quote is saying is that there was no hope of forgiveness for mortal sins uh, for Roman Catholics unless they confessed them. That that the, that priest functioned as a mediator, uh, and if they didn't go to the priest and confess, they couldn't be forgiven. Uh, that's that's what that is saying. So to, so to summarize all all of this, so this is this is the the view of of. I guess, uh, sa- salvation. We've talked about their, the view of salvation of the Roman Catholic Church in, in past weeks, but this is their, their view of mediators. Uh, all of these individuals were were seen as those who they could go to for mediation. So for the Roman Catholic Church, this is to summarize. Christ is Savior, but others participate with him to bring about redemption. Mary is co-redeemer and co-mediator with Jesus, deserving of a devotion corresponding to his status. Remember, the the... the the catechism said that she cooperated in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. So Mary is co-redeemer, co-mediator, uh, and then dead saints are, are to offer up the works or can offer up the works of their earthly lives for the benefit of those still living. Now, the Pope and the College of Bishops act as prophets giving new revelation uh, and the forgiveness of sins is dependent upon confession of a human priest. Uh, this, this is what the, the Roman Catholic Church taught for centuries. Uh, and and if this is if this is what the the church was teaching, uh, any church, any, any organization that claims to be church should always be held up to what standard and to what authority. The Bible said, "Hey, so that's fine. If if you're going to teach that, show me where it is in the in the Bible and help me to understand where you're coming from." So so what I want to do now is kind of kind of shift gears. And if you have your Bibles, let's let's open it up and le- and let's see what the scriptures actually say about. Uh, who the Christian should turn to for salvation and mediation with God. Uh, a mediator is a, simply a go-between. Okay? Uh, they are somebody who, uh, who represents uh, a party, uh, two, or you know, they come in between two parties. Uh, Job in the Old Testament uh, crying out. He, he wishes that there was somebody uh, who could put uh, one hand on God and one hand on him and mediate between them. Uh, and we'll see Job's, Job's prayer and his desire is answered later on uh, in the Bible as that person is revealed to be Jesus Christ. But, but what do the Scriptures say? To whom should the Christian turn for comfort, redemption, salvation, and mediation with God? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, there was one Savior, and that was God alone. If you, if you open up to Psalms, we'll look at a couple different Psalms here. Uh, Psalm 3, verse 8 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, it says salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing beyond your people, selah. And I love when the psalmist does that, that. If you're reading in the Psalms and you see that word selah, it means means he wants you to pause and, and reflect about what he just said. And he just said salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to man. Additionally, Psalm 18, uh, verse 46 it says the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-nine. It says the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord; He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. So this verse. It so says that salvation comes from God, and, and our stronghold, where we should run when there's danger, where we should run when we need safety, is to who? To God. Additionally, the, the, in the Old Testament as a whole, Israel is never encouraged to turn to anybody other than God. Uh, listen to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Very, very famous passage, one that Jesus quotes uh, when questioned about the great commandment, Deuteronomy 6, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. So, if, and just the, the, the reality of that's an exclusive claim, right? How much is all? It's all. Uh, and if you love the Lord with all of your heart, what, what do you have left remaining? Nothing. There's no devotion left for, for anybody else if you're giving all to God. Now, additionally, Leviticus 26.1 says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to, for I am the Lord your God. See, in the Old Testament, Israel was to worship God alone for their salvation. They were to turn to nobody else. Uh, they were end, uh, especially at the heart of idolatry, of, of bowing down to another idol. The reason for that command is you don't want to ascribe to somebody else what God has done, right? Uh, when I was in seminary, when I first entered into seminary, uh, one of the books that they gave me, they gave me two books, an English refresher course, uh, which I thought I would pass... Easily, I'm like, hey, I'm a college graduate, and they they came around the corner with a notebook of 180 pages. Uh, I had to take the test a couple of different times. Uh, But uh, another book that they gave me was a book called Turabian, and it's all about formatting papers uh, and footnotes. Uh, Has anyone ever had to use footnotes in in a paper? It's like like, I'd rather have my teeth pulled. Uh, But but what you have to do, the purpose of footnotes is to give credit where credit is due. You have to acknowledge of, hey, if I'm, if I'm quoting another author, I need to say who that author is and where I got that information, so that I don't misquote them, and so that you know that that's not my word, that's not my idea, uh, but it's, it's attributed to somebody else, because would it be right for me to, to claim somebody else's ideas? No. That, that's intellectual theft, so to speak, uh, and you you need to, to honor somebody who has gone before you, even if they've, they're teaching on the same thing, you have to quote them, and uh, idolatry is kind of like that. It's, it's kind of like uh, plagiarizing. You're, you're taking what God has done and ascribing it to somebody else. Uh, and so uh, if, if God alone is Savior, if God alone uh, is the one who saves, it would, be, it would be pretty sinful and wrong for me to claim part of that for myself or to attribute some of that to somebody else, wouldn't it? God's probably not going to be happy with that. Uh, and so that, that, this is the idea. The, the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, says, Israel, only worship God. Don't, don't go to any other idols. They can't help you. They can't save you. Go to God alone. He is your only hope. So in the Old Testament, say, for salvation, the only place to turn is to God. And then what about mediators in the Old Testament? There, there were two different kinds of mediators in the Old Testament. Uh, priests. And prophets, uh, and they function in different ways. Priests, uh, like the, the Levitical priesthood uh, among the nation of Israel, uh, priests go uh, and they represent uh, people to God. Okay, uh, when Moses uh, is on uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus uh, 19, uh, he he stands there, and uh, the glory of God descends upon uh, the top of Mount Sinai, uh, and the the entire nation of Israel is supposed to go up and, and interact with God. Uh, well, all the people see the glory of God with the, the thunder and lightning and the darkness on the top of the mountain. And they're like, hey, Moses, uh, could you just go and then come back and let us know uh, what God says? See, they don't want to go up and be in the presence of a holy God. So they send a mediator, a representative, to go uh, on their behalf to God the Father. Uh, and that's where Moses becomes a, a, both a priest uh, and a prophet because uh, a prophet goes the other direction instead of God speaking directly to the people because again they would be they would be scared he sends a prophet uh, and what is what does a prophet always say thus saith the lord uh, to use the king james lith uh, there Th- thus says god this is what god has proclaimed so uh, a priest comes and represents people before god uh, and a prophet comes and represents god to people uh, and this is what we see in the old testament and and Israel, as a nation, was supposed to be a, a nation of priests. They were supposed to be mediators, so that all of the other nations of the world came and would interact uh, with Israel in order to know the one true God. So uh, that those are salvation and or Savior and mediator in the Old Testament. Okay, uh, it was uh, there was a God as Savior and there are human mediators. Now, well, in the New Testament, uh, these offices of Savior, mediator, priest, and prophet are all woven together in one person, Jesus. See, the New Testament teaches that uh, that Jesus is Savior. I'm going to read some verses. You can can turn if you want, but I realize I'm I'm reading faster than You can probably turn there. But uh, the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus is Savior. Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Acts 13.23, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 2 Timothy 1.10, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Titus 1.4, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus 2.13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then 1 John 4.14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is clearly spoken of as Savior in the New Testament. He's also spoken of as Mediator, and not a mediator, but the mediator. Listen to First Timothy 2:5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, additionally, Hebrews 9:15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, so think about that. He's not a mediator, but he is the mediator of the new covenant. There's a singularity there. Yeah, he's identified as Savior. He's identified as mediator. He's also identified as high priest. If, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. This is, uh, this is a, a passage that I really want to, to look at and understand. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verse, verses four, 15 and 16. So Hebrews will be in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. Let's actually start in verse 14. The author of Hebrews writes, says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And see, this is so important of of Jesus as our high priest, uh, that Jesus is our mediator. And if Jesus is our high priest, not like a low priest, high priest, he's, he's the priest uh, within Christianity. We only have one. He's the high priest. And so, and what access does he, does he give to us? What access do we have? We have, through Jesus Christ, direct access to the throne room of God, All right? We have direct access to the throne room. And the whole point of this verse is because, of, because we have a high priest, we have direct access to God, And the point is, take advantage of it, right? Verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How confident could we be to draw near to God without Christ as mediator? It goes back to Mount Sinai. The people of Israel, hey, let's send somebody else. I don't want to go there. But the reality is, with Jesus Christ as our mediator, and he gives us direct access to God, we get to take advantage of that. And if he... He gives us direct access, why do we need another mediator right? Why, why do I need to turn to somebody else when he gives me direct access right Why do I need to turn to a human priest or, or, or to Mary or to other saints if I have direct access to the throne room of God? Why do I want to take the, uh, the long scenic route when, there, when there's a shortcut right Why do I want to do that there 's nothing else to to see Jesus is the one that I need. If you turn over just a couple pages, in in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is really going to emphasize this truth, this reality that Jesus is our High Priest, and the reality that uh, that Jesus is the priest of a, of a new covenant uh, and the old covenant. Where, as we saw in in the Old Testament, hey, there were human priests, there were human mediators, but now all of that has been done away with. Uh, as we see, Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13. So in speaking of a, of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So there's, there's no need to go back to human priests. There's no need to go back to, to other mediators because who do we have? We have the final, the complete mediator uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is our high priest. He is our Savior. He is the one mediator. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, you'll also see that, that Jesus is the prophet, uh, the prophet that God now speaks to us through. Chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The, the, the point of that is, is Jesus is uh, the culmination of that long line of prophets in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses spoke of that Moses prophet. Moses prophesied, hey, God's going to send you other prophets uh, like me, and, and when they come, you need to listen to them. And Jesus is the culmination of that long line of prophets uh, that, that was uh, foretold of back in the Old Testament, that Jesus is now, uh, he's our high priest, he's our prophet. Uh, he's also uh, the head of the church. Uh, you can just listen to these verses quoted. Colossians 1.18, uh, speaking of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, The church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Also, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So uh, so all, all of this to, to say, what do, what do we get from all this? I know, let's come up for air here just a little bit. I know it's been, uh, been a, lot of, uh, a lot of long quotes, a lot of scripture reading, but uh, let's come up and, and summarize what, what the Bible says about uh, Jesus what the Bible says about who we should look to for salvation and mediation. The Bible says that there is one and only one Savior and Mediator, and that's Jesus. So there can be no co-redeemer, there can be no other mediators between us and God, because Jesus is the only one. Uh, and specifically, Mary cannot be, be co-redeemer if she herself needed to be saved. Uh, The Bible teaches that all men are sinners. There was nobody born of a special uh, grace uh, of God who was born sinless. The Bible says all. And even, I think if you were to speak with Mary, I don't think she would claim to be sinless because she referred to God as God my Savior. Uh, In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, after uh, the angel Gabriel comes and announces, hey, Mary, you're going to have you're going to have a child. Uh, and, and you're going to bear the, the, the Messiah, uh, she responds with a very famous prayer called the Magnificat. And she begins the, that prayer by saying, uh, and, Mary, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So you have, you have to ask, if she's referring to God as her Savior, what has she been saved from? And why does she need a Savior if she herself is Sinless. If she's sinless, then she has no need for a Savior because she is guiltless and and righteous before God in and of her own actions. But that is is not the case. So uh, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the one and only Savior and mediator. Secondly, that Jesus is our high priest who gives us direct access to God. So there's no need to go to another human mediator. Thirdly, that Jesus is the head of the church, and every believer is the body. That's the, I guess, the hierarchy uh, that that the Bible lays out. There's the head of the church, Jesus, and then everybody else is a part of the body. Uh, uh, that that's what the Bible teaches. So, uh, so unless the, so the Pope can't claim to be the head of the church unless he has overthrown who, Christ, because Jesus says, "I am the head of the church." He is the head of the body, the church. The Bible teaches that. It is salvation by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. There can be no other Savior. There can be no other mediator. There's no one else who can contribute to your salvation. Your parents can't. uh, Your dead relatives can't. The Pope can't. uh, The priest can't. I can't contribute to your salvation. Uh, The only person who can contribute to your salvation is God. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, a Swiss reformer, said this. He says, the summary of the gospel is that our Lord Christ, true Son of God, has made known to us the will of his Heavenly Father and has redeemed us from death and reconciled us with God by his guiltlessness. Therefore, Christ is the only way to salvation of all who were, are now, or shall be. Now, that, that is what Christ alone means. If there is no other Savior, there is no other mediator besides Jesus Christ. But why are we still talking about this? Like, okay, this is 500 years ago. Uh, why does this still matter? Well, I just have three three thoughts on this because I couldn't I didn't have time for more. Uh, but uh, this this is so important. Why why is this still important? Because number one, this doctrine of Christ alone is the biggest stumbling block to the culture around us. Hey, the, the, uh, the culture around us doesn't like anybody to stand up and say dogmatically, this is true. And if this is, Because if something is true, what does it mean about everything else? It's, yeah, uh, th- there's this dichotomy. If something's true, other things are false. But our culture likes to say what? Everything's true. Everyone can be right, even if you're saying things that conflict. Like, wait, that's a, that's a head scratcher. Did we throw logic out the window? Uh, our culture would, would be marked by, by three things, I would say. Number one, by, by pluralism, uh, the, the belief that all roads lead to God, right? That, hey, no matter what you believe, you, you'll eventually get to, to God. You'll en- eventually end up there. Uh, but Christ alone proclaims only one way, only one narrow path, and Jesus is that way. Our culture is also marked by postmodernism, that the idea, again, that there is no absolute truth, uh, that multiple people can be right and no one has to be wrong, uh, but Christ alone proclaims an absolute truth, and that truth is that Jesus is the truth. The truth is a person, and it is Jesus. Our culture is also marked by universalism, the idea that all people will be saved and enter into heaven. Uh, And uh, that Christ alone proclaims the opposite. Christ alone naturally says that all people are sinful, uh, running away from God, and they are in need of a Savior. And that only Savior, the only hope of redemption and salvation, is through Christ. If there was one verse to summarize uh, kind of what the, what Christianity teaches, if we if we needed to narrow it down, uh, I, I would throw I, I would encourage this uh, verse to be uh, held to that standard. John 14:6. Jesus said to him, one of his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and, and what's amazing is I've, I've had conversations with people uh, about this. So they come and they say, hey, you know, I, uh, I want to know what your church teaches. And I share the gospel with them. Uh, and they say, well, but it can't just be one way that leads to Jesus. It can't just be one thing uh, that, that gets you to heaven. Now, there's got to be multiple ways, in that, and I always turn to this verse, John 14, 6. It's like Jesus is uh, not a way or a part of the truth or one way to life, but he, all of those, there's a definite article. He is the the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's like that that seems really clear, and it's amazing. If people uh, people will always uh, try and say, well, well that, that's what it means to you, uh, there's multiple ways of understanding that, and I said, "Well, we just jumped right back into uh, what this verse argues against—that that, that there's multiple ways of understanding something correctly. Was, hey, there's there's one truth. Additionally, another great verse is Acts 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And uh, this is this is so key to understand. That this, is, this doctrine, that, that Christ alone and Christ alone will save you, is the one that, that's most hated and the one that our culture around us will push uh, up against you the most. Okay? And, and interestingly enough, we don't, we don't have time, but uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s, because of that same pressure, the, the culture exerts pressure on anybody who would claim absolute truth, the Roman Catholic Church has changed their teaching to, in essence, say that now anybody who lives a good life will be saved. And So the Vatican II Council, I'll have it on the the notes uh, posted on the website with the sermon, Um, but I have the quotes in there from the the, the council, and you can go, just just search Second Vatican Council, uh, look at uh, sections, I can't pronounce the Latin name of the Constitution, but I can send it to you. But they, in essence, say that, that, Protestants, Christians who reject the Pope and and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church can be saved. They say uh, Jews can be saved, Muslims can be saved, and even nobody or people that that don't uh, necessarily even know Jesus or have heard the gospel, they can be saved if they try and lead a good life. And ultimately, we shouldn't be shocked that they come to that conclusion because it's a works-based salvation to begin with, and if it's works that save you, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter uh, what you know or, or are convinced of. It's just, hey, just try and be a good person. If you try to live a good life, that's what the Roman Catholic Church now teaches. So uh, th- this doctrine is so important because this is where you're going to, to face persecution with the most, with your, with your friends at school, with your coworkers at work, with your neighbors, with your family members. Uh, and, and we need to be ready for that. Additionally, a second reason that Christ alone is still meaningful today is that it gives meaning to our discipleship. Yeah, what do I mean by that? Think about this. If if Jesus isn't the only way, if there are other ways to, to be saved, then why would I want to be like Jesus? And if Jesus claimed to be the only way, and there are other ways, then what does that mean about him? Then he's a liar. He, he's, he's not God. Then why should I believe in him? Why should I follow him why should i even go through the motions if there's other ways to get to god why why do i need to follow and believe in jesus but if christ is the only way and he is then what must i do that i have no choice no matter i must look to him for salvation and then i must follow him and obey him with all my heart soul mind and strength uh, a third reason that christ alone is important today is that it gives urgency to our evangelism now, that if, if Christ is not the only way, why should I share the gospel with anybody? Why should I tell anybody else about Jesus if there's other ways that they can be saved? If they can, if they can earn their way to heaven, what should I be encouraging them to do? I should be encouraging them to live a good life. But if Jesus is the only way to heaven, and if, he, uh, if they don't believe, unless they believe in him, they are condemned, and they're in rebellion against God, then I have to share the gospel with them. I have to point them to believe in him. Uh, and so, if Christ, if Christ alone is not the only way to to be saved and to be in right relationship with God, there's no need for for me to share the gospel with anybody, and I can just be I can just be silent. But, but if Christ is the only way, there's suddenly an urgency, because that means as you go back to to your homes, to your neighborhoods, to to your workplaces, uh, what is it that people need to know? What do they need to hear? they need to hear who Jesus is and what he has done for them. That all people uh, have sinned against a holy God and have uh, separated themselves from him by choice. Uh, and that the, the result of that uh, sin against God is is separation that they can't fix. So that if they can't fix something, they need somebody else to help them. They need somebody else to save them. Uh, and that's where Jesus comes in. If he's the only savior, there's, he's the only one they can turn to. And that's what we must share that jesus christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross that he died uh, he rose again on the third day ascended into heaven and now uh, all who look to him in faith are forgiven for their sins Uh, and we get jesus's righteousness uh, and he takes our sin not not an equal trade uh, but one that he endured on our behalf for our benefit and so if, if you're here this morning and you haven't believed in christ alone for salvation i would I would plead with you to look to him and him alone for salvation. Look to him. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to the Pope or to anybody else. Look to Christ alone. And if you are here and you have already placed your faith in salvation, I've got to ask, do you really believe what you think you believe about Jesus? Are you truly convinced that he alone is the only way to be saved, that he is the only way to heaven because uh, it's only a matter of time before a friend a family member a neighbor a co-worker comes up and says hey i don't believe in jesus where do you think i'm going to end up do you believe that i'm going to go to hell we need to be ready to respond to them not not with not with anger and animosity but with what with grace encouraging faith in jesus that's what we have to be ready to do. And that, that's that's a, an internal gut check that we all have to, to look at and examine this morning. Am I ready to stand for Christ? Pastor Miguel Nunez has said this, You must believe in a Jesus who is equal to no one and greater than everyone. And is that the Jesus that you believe in? We are we are called to stand firmly in our conviction that Jesus Christ is the only savior and the only mediator. And people are going to come at us and they may, uh, promise, uh, that we would lose our reputation. We might get the reputation as somebody who hates others. If we stand by this, uh, we may lose jobs. We may lose, uh, home loans. We may lose, uh, ultimately our lives. If we stick to this, uh, desiring God, uh, uh, a ministry, an online ministry, has been, uh, this month, they've been doing a, a podcast every day. It's called Here We Stand, uh, and each day they, they do a story of, of somebody from the Reformation. And I heard this this week, and uh, it just, it, it pierced me right to my heart. Uh, and, and I want to share it with you. Just, uh, I'm going to read directly from the, the podcast's transcript, and I would encourage you to listen to it this month. But this this article is by by a man named Tony Reinke. And he calls it the Ordinary Virgin Mary. He says, The drama of the Protestant Reformation casts big personalities and major characters, the types of men who are now etched into myths, legends, and giant stone figures. But the Reformation is also the story of everyday, ordinary followers of Christ, mostly forgotten, who lived out Reformation theology on the ground and who paid the price for it with their lives martyrs like Helen Stirk. So Helen was a fairly average Scottish Christian in the city of Perth, dedicated to daily domestic work as a wife and mother, and her life remained unnoticed to history until the birth of her last child in 1544. When the time arrived for Helen's labor and delivery, Catholic tradition called for earnest prayers to the Virgin Mary. Having a good sense of scripture, Helen repudiated these petitions. It was a tradition she would not follow. Her baffled midwives pressed her to make such a prayer, but she refused the ritual. The physical risk was real, but the prayers were nothing more than superstitious insurance. If I had lived in the days of the Virgin, Helen said with poise, God might have looked likewise to my humility and base estate as he did the virgin. And he might have made me the mother of Christ. Her her childbed sermonette must have triggered gasps. Uh, Because again, who do do Roman Catholics, how do they view Mary Uh, as the sinless one? She's she's worthy of devotion. And here you have this, this common woman saying, well, I'm the same as Mary. Helen was settled and comforted by her theology, knowing her prayers were going directly to God through her Savior, Jesus Christ. News of Helen's refusal to pray to Mary and her bold claim that she was on equal standing before God very soon found its way to the ears of the local Catholic clergy and quickly up the chain to the presiding cardinal. His response was swift to snuff out this spark of Protestant theology. Before long, Helen was arrested and imprisoned along with her husband and four other outspoken Protestants in the city. The small group was soon found guilty of heresy and sentenced to death. The following day, soldiers brought Helen, her husband, and the condemned Protestants to the gallows. Helen asked to die side by side with her husband, James Finlayson, But her request was denied. Men were to be hanged and women drowned. And James would go first. Holding her young child in her arms, Helen approached her husband, kissed him, and gave him these parting words. Husband, be glad, for we have lived together many joyful days. And this day, in which we must die, we ought to esteem the the most joyful of all, because we shall have joy forever. Therefore, I will not bid you good night, for we shall shortly meet in the kingdom of heaven. James was hanged before her eyes, his life on earth done. Eyes fell to Helen, who was forced to hand over her newborn to a nurse entrusted with the child's care from this point. The authorities led Helen to a nearby pond, bound her hands and feet, put her into a large gunny sack, along with stones or weights, and threw her into the water like a bag of garbage. All for the crime of blaspheming the Virgin Mary. Heaven has all the details, but this is all we know of Helen's life. She was a bold woman made strong by Scripture. She was absolutely concerned or convinced that there was one mediator and one Savior, and she wouldn't flinch on that. She knew that her, her, her prayers to Mary would be pointless. She was convinced that her one mediator was Jesus Christ. And she was willing to, to stick with that conviction no matter what, no matter the consequences. Said, this is true. I can't, I can't attribute a, a falsehood to God. I can't begin to, to look to somebody else for what Christ has done. And it cost her her life. And I just want to, want to encourage us of, of how, how firmly do we believe that Jesus is the only way? Because unless we are absolutely convinced in our own heart, in our own mind, uh, in those moments when somebody asks, what's the temptation going to be? Well, let me, let me just adjust just a little bit. Let me, let me believe something different. Let me trust in a different Savior. Let me, let me update my theology. Let me adjust what I believe to make this person happy. When the reality is we must act according to our convictions, absolutely sure that Christ alone is our Savior and that Christ alone is our mediator. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. Because you are our high priest. Because you are the one mediator that we can turn to. Between us and God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given your life on our behalf. We praise you for the righteous life that you lived and your willingness to go to the cross to endure what you did not deserve. And in so doing, Lord, you have purchased our redemption. You have paid the penalty for our sin. And now you are worthy of our complete adoration. You are the one who has saved us. You are the one that we must now follow. And you are the one that the world desperately needs to hear of. So what I pray that you would develop this conviction in our hearts that you would help us uh, to believe what you have taught us in your word, that we would be absolutely convinced of it, and that you would then give us boldness and graciousness and speech that is seasoned with salt that we might know how to answer each person as they question us about our faith. And may we be bold in sharing the gospel with others because they desperately need the gospel. Lord, all those who do not believe in Christ are estranged from you, rebelling against God. Lord, help us to carry the message of reconciliation. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would impress this truth upon our hearts, and may we stand strongly for you. We ask this in the precious, precious name of our one Savior and mediator, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.